All right, so personal confession right away this morning. First service was like we needed to get up and do some jumping jacks, do a little shaking it out. There's donuts out there, there's coffee, there's sugar. If you need to get some Jesus in your veins, all the boys, yeah, woohoo, donuts. Yes, it is uh, the best food because it's not only full of sugar, but it is a holy food. Oh, donut joke. Uh, I was learning from the kids this morning. They're telling me all sorts of donut jokes. Um, Again, I'm Pastor Andrew, and I'm glad that uh, you're here today. And we are coming to our second week of our Roman study. And if you tuned in last week, uh, whether it was here on Sunday or in a small group, uh, we're really excited and we want to encourage you to continue to dig. Um, This morning is going to be a hard one. And I'm going to tell you right up uh, front that as uh, this word is in our face, um, it has been in my face all week, and uh, the truth of the matter is this, we can't shy away from it. We can't walk away, Um, we can't uh, just say, I'm going to skip over that one. Uh, We can't say, "Um, well that's important, It, it meant something then, and it doesn't mean anything now, because it does mean something now. And uh, I come to you this morning with a little bit of a personal testimony before we read our word. And uh, perhaps some of you parents have uh, been in these same shoes. When Amy and I found out that we were pregnant with Luella, you know, we get the, oh, congratulations in our conversations with people. And, and then there would be, um, typically, not to stereotype here, typically some of the older folks would say, oh my gosh, I would hate to raise a kid in the world today. How many of you have ever been in a conversation like that? Maybe you've said it or you know somebody who has had that kind of conversation. Like, oh my gosh, raising a kid in the context of the world now wouldn't do it. Just wouldn't do it. And, you know, after we heard this numerous times, it finally came to a point where I I just said to the person, the the last person I heard say this, like, um, you did it, right? And they're like, well, yeah, I'm like, Okay, ah, there's hope. There's hope you did it. We, we all have this looking at the world, looking at what's taking place, looking at what's out there as, oh my gosh, it's horrible, and um, I don't want to expose or put my family at what's going on out there. And I'm going to do a lot of this today. I'm going to say out there, and I know out there is this way too, but for some reason the last service I was just saying out there. So uh, it seemed like everybody over here was okay, but everybody over there wasn't, all right? So bear with me. <laughs> and um, so if you brought your scripture with you today, I'm going to be reading from the NIV. We're going to be reading uh, chapters 1, verse 18 through chapter 2, verse 11. Now our study is from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to chapter 3, verse 20. And we'll end with some of chapter 3, but I want to give us uh, the opportunity to talk about what's taking place here in 1 and 2. Paul is talking to the church in Rome. He's talking to the Jews, Paul himself a Jew. He's talking to the context there of the church. And the first part that we're going to read, he's addressing what's going on out there. Because there's questions within the church, there's questions in the Christian faith of, what is going on out there, is that right and true? And how do we as Christians interact? How do we deal with what's taking place in the world? And so this is what he starts to tell us in verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all 
the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what, what, what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and then received themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossipers, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death. They not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. You, see, transitions to the church. You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of His kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed, God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who, by persistence in doing good, seek glory, honor, and mortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jews, then for the Gentile, for God does not show favoritism. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth, even, Lord, as it is in our face right now, even as we seek these words of yours to be impressed upon our hearts. And God, we ask now in this moment that you would 
open our hearts, that you would soften our minds, that we would be able to receive your word for what it is that you want us to do and be. In Jesus' name, amen. As we take all of this in, my first thought is, is this scripture talking about today in our culture? The obvious answer is yes. It applies as much then as it does today. When we see here in the Word of God, if you see what's taking place, as Paul is listing out Romans. Now, I will admit, when you come to church, it's not the first scripture you want to hear. It's not like this encouraging thing, this, this reality of sin, as Paul is going through this list of everything that is going wrong out there and out there. Sin is utterly real. And if we recall what we talked about last week in God's righteousness, the good news of the gospel, we have to first acknowledge where the good news comes from and the source and why the good news has come. The good news has come. Jesus Christ has come because of sin. And so Paul is opening up the floodgates. He's talking to his church. He's talking to us. He's saying, hey, this is what's taking place. Sin is utterly real. Now, when we see and read this, some things might come to your mind, some things uh, such as the conversations you've had with people or the interactions in your family or in our community or whatever community you've come from, wherever you uh, stand in a basis of the things that are taking place in our world, in our context, in our culture. All of that being addressed here, and I think this is important for us to know as Christians, what Paul And what God is speaking through Paul to this church to say is that we see universal moral and ethical decay, not only then, but today. Morals being that standard standard of right and wrong and ethics being the system of morals of right and wrong. How do we get to the root of morals? How do we look at that? If we look at the context of the world and, and the cultures, do they change from place to place? And my argument and my petition to you this morning is that there is in here a code of universal morals of right and wrong. Black and white, heads or tails, there is no gray area, no two ways about it. As I see this and as I read and as I petition to you to to take a moment and think about this. Think about all the things that we might disagree in our culture, but then think about all the things we do agree on. You and I would, in a conversation, probably have a lot more in common or have a lot more things that we agree on than we do disagree For example, you and I, as we came to church this morning, we all were in the right agreement that it is not okay to murder, that it's not okay to come to church and steal all the donuts, that you and I see that it is wrong to steal, to murder. Those are an example of a universal moral code of right and wrong. It is in the fabric and the thread of every culture and every human being. Now, I will admit, and as we talked Wednesday night in our adult group, this was something that we all had some uh, resemblance on, that when or if we were not Christians and we became Christians or someone invited us to church, the first impression some of us had was church is just about a set of rules. 
I don't want to go to church because all church does is just give me rules of how I can't live. Or I should not do this and I should do that. And some of you in here this morning, I pray, have had maybe that wrestling match yourself or in the conversations with other people that, oh, church is just uh, wanting to really just dictate me and control the way that I live my life. But I want to, again, petition with you that what God has put before us in the Ten Commandments, in the Sermon on the Mount, and His law is not to control you, but to free you. To free you into the completeness of who you are. Now, we remember what took place in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve, they were in perfect harmony with God and and the perfectness of the Garden of Eden. And when sin, when the devil tempted Adam and Eve, they took part of the fruit and they ate that. That is when sin came into humanity. And it's been inherent from then on. That moment, that relationship, that perfect relationship being broken is a reminder as we look at the laws, or if you want to use the word rule, or moral code that God gives us, is to help remind us how we get to that perfect place again. How to be the complete human, how to be the completeness and the creation in which we were made. Now Paul begins in chapter 1 verse 18, he says, what, what, what God has done is plain. It's, it's known to everybody. It's right before our eyes, but they've chosen not to worship God. They've chosen not to look at creation and say, oh, that is something greater who created. Now, you and I have to realize this, that when we see creation, when we witness, and when we're a part of nature, it is covered in God's fingerprints, but not to be worshipped, but it is a signpost. Creation is a pointing towards the Creator. You and I are part of God's creation. We are to be pointing towards our Creator. Instead, Paul is saying, the world has looked outside, and they started worshipping. They started displacing, started mistrusting, started putting their faith and things that they shouldn't be. He says, like, they've started uh, worshiping images like mere human beings and animals and reptiles. And if we remember in the context of Rome, and if we take an assessment of our world today, Rome, it was the polytheism, lots of different gods. And so he's saying all those different gods that people are worshiping, and they have these different things in their houses that they worship and rely on, that's a god. And I was thinking this week as I'm working on this, and, and uh, Luella and Joanna love to go up to the Alexa and say, hey, play Baby Shark. Hey, play. So it's become this like reliance in our house of this little Alexa device. And it's like, have we turned that thing into an idol? Have we started to worship Alexa to play us Baby Shark? Oh my gosh, this world is coming in so fast. And I I give that as a silly example of what we look at in our culture, in our world, of the things that we say, I can't live without, or this or that. Now, don't get me wrong, there are things out there that are good and are helpful and beneficial, but when they become the utter reliance of worship, we need to check ourselves. The morals of right and wrong. I want us to think about this as well, and I I will confess that any time that I can insert some sort of King James, I'm gonna. 
And so uh, I want to read to you the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord thy God. Thou shalt have no other gods but me. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Thou shalt keep the Sabbath day holy. Thou shalt honor father and mother. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Do not let thyself lust after thy neighbor's wife. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, nor his farm, nor his cattle, nor anything that is his. Each commandment that we just read. You look at the Sermon on the Mount. They're a mere reflection of what is being talked about here. There's a moral code of right and wrong. Now we might be in conversations with people that say, I totally disagree. I don't think that is true, right, in any way, shape, or form. And I have been in a lot of those conversations, and quite frankly, I, I sometimes enjoy them to be in a conversation where someone might disagree. And we always have to get to the root of why they would disagree. And so we, we start off, here, here's a hypothetical conversation of someone saying, I really don't think that the Ten Commandments or God's law or the Sermon on the Mount is a moral guide for my life. I have the freedom to decide whatever I want to do. And I would say, you're right. You do have the freedom to decide what you would want to do. But I would ask you, if, have you actually read the Ten Commandments or the Sermon on the Mount? Nine times out of ten, the conversation quickly goes to, well, no, I haven't. Because we get back to the place if we think that church is just about rules and a, a way to control us and to push us into this conformity, this or that. The reality is, is that if we don't actually spend time in God's word and understand that God's word is the truth to help us get back to that perfect state of creation to free us from the enslavement of the things of this world. If we don't believe this word is true, everything else is thrown out. Now, I will confess to you something that I did not confess to the first service. Last week, the Iowa United Methodist Board of Ordained Ministry took a vote. The vote was eight people to 47. Eight people decided, hey, this is the true word of God. It is infallible. We are going to uphold this. 47 people said, no, it's not. That and the book of discipline is going to go out the window when we are hiring pastors and ordaining people. It is in our church as much as it is in our culture. And so that's why we turn straight to chapter 2 as Paul is listing out all these sins of everything that's taking place in the world and you and I could sit down and we could say, oh my gosh, I see this, I see this, I, I heard about that interaction. Oh my gosh, it's horrendous. I would never. And then Paul has to remind us, the church, as he turns in chapter 2 by saying, but you, you as the church, you as the Jews, now this is important because this is the main point of contention as Paul is writing to the church. He's saying you as Jews, you're, you're the ones that God chose to, to work through. He's given you the Old Testament. He's given you the Ten Commandments. He's given you the laws. He's walked with you. Those Gentiles don't have the Old Testament. They don't have any of that. 
And so in some regard, when we look at the world and how it's acting and what they're doing, of course, should we expect any less with sin? Because if sin isn't in line with God's word, it's going to continue to be sin. But here the reality is Paul is saying, you as the church, if you're going to sit in the church and point fingers and say, oh my gosh, look at what's going on out there, take a reflection of what's going on in here. And he says to the church, do you who get angry with somebody that's stealing, do you rob the temple? Do you that get mad at somebody about false teaching, do you do the opposite of what you teach? He's calling the church out. He's saying you can't be a hypocrite. You cannot look at the world and point the finger without taking an assessment yourself. So church, I beg us, are we doing the same thing? Or are we just the ones in a conversation that want to be the right ones? Because you and I both know in the conversations that are before us and will come, they're going to be difficult. They're going to be hard. But I truly believe that God is bringing us together as a church, that God is bringing us together as his sons and daughters, as a family, and the unity, as we're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, that we are all different, but as the body has different parts, it is brought together for one main function. And our function is to be that gospel light and love and truth in the world. Now, my prayer is that the day that Amy and I are old enough to be able to help a young couple that is having kids, that our first words aren't saying, congratulations, man, I would not want to raise a kid in this world. Um, my prayer is that our words would be like, well, I can't wait to watch your kid get raised in this world. I can't wait to see your kid raised in the church. God is going to be doing so many amazing things. Because, honestly, we as the church, we've been very hypocritical and saying, I don't like what's going on out there. And yet, we come here, not to stay here, but we come here to go there. How are we interacting with the world? How are you having conversations with people? Do you uh, find yourself in fear because you don't know where that conversation might lead? You don't know if it's going to offend them or, or if they're going to hate you or disown you or, or spread things about you on social media? Are you afraid that God might actually put you in a place that's uncomfortable, might use you, might speak through His Holy Spirit to your life? Or do we do nothing at all? You know, it's interesting, yesterday as we were driving to the pumpkin patch, Amy and I were talking, and I thinking about all the different conversations I have with the clergy around our area, and, and actually the statistics and how it's uh, hard times, and even uh, trying to get people to, to want to come to church, and be excited about God, and, and to actually know that God is true and real, and that God, our creator, wants a relationship with you, and wants you to have eternal life with him. Why is that so hard and yet we're driving by the soccer fields on County Home Road and you can't find a parking spot and the fields are jam-packed. We, ourselves, prioritize and choose and say this is more important. Now don't get me wrong because I'm probably going to be sitting at those soccer fields someday, I guarantee you that. But the question is, 
Where are we prioritizing? What are we focusing on? Are we using the scapegoat of that sin? I don't want anything to do with it. I'm going to stay here. But I had a really good friend from seminary who posted something this morning. He said, you know, if you are living your life under the assumption that you're going to be spending eternity in God's mansion, but you can't find the time or prioritize to be in God's house once a week here on earth, you are sadly mistaken. Think about that, that we live our lives like, oh, it's going to be fine in the end, because right now, God's, God's got me covered. God's forgiveness is good. That's the Sunday school message we've all heard, that no matter what you do, God's going to forgive you. God's grace is there for you. But we have heard the word this morning right here. Do you not show contempt for his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? God's grace for us is not to say, go do whatever you want and in the end you'll be covered. God's grace for us is to acknowledge our sin and to say, God, I'm sorry, I, want, I don't want to live in that. To repent, to turn around, to do the complete opposite of what you're doing. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a Lutheran pastor in the rise of Hitler was a spy for the church, spied on Hitler, did a lot of different things to further the faith in the kingdom. And he says something that's very profound. He says, we people, we Christians, tend to operate and live underneath this presumption of cheap grace. But God's grace is all-sufficient and all-good. I'm going to live however I want now. Because in the end, it'll be okay. But the truth of the word is, so we just read, as Paul is talking to the Jews in this church, all are going to be judged. Now real quick, how do we bring this home? How do we bring this home? As Paul is pointing out what the Gentiles are doing and what the Jews are doing, and essentially he's saying everybody is sin, everybody is broken, and if you disagree with me and you don't think that is true, that we all sin and that we are all wrong, and I really struggle with that of at what age do people start sinning? And, and as we started having kids, like, oh, it's, it's actually pretty early. If you don't believe me, you can come spend the day with us today because we've got three of them, and myself and Amy included. It's just a, it's a hot mess sometimes. Life is messy, but in the midst of that, just because we're here doesn't mean that we're better than those who chose not to come. Just because we're here doesn't mean that we're better than those who have never heard the good news of the gospel, because you and I need to know that there are people in this world who have never heard the name of Jesus Christ. What happens to them when they die? Where do they go? What's going to happen to them when they stand face to face with Jesus? Now, Paul lays it out here in this chapter of three. He's saying the Gentiles, they didn't have the Old Testament. They didn't have anybody to teach them about God. And yet, in their lives, they lived as if they have known the gospel the entire time. For God has written what is right and wrong upon every single person's heart and mind. But it is you and I who are given the ability of what we do with that right and wrong. What is your choice? And he bounces to the argument, to the 
Jews because they're, they're saying, okay, yeah, they, okay, that might be true that God has written that on their, their conscience and, the, and they have it in their souls, but, but we, we're circumcised. Because in the Jewish tradition to be an Israelite on the eighth day, the boy is circumcised and they are dedicated to God. And, and that's how the Jews and the Israelites were known apart from all the other people. Paul says, you've got it all wrong. It's not a, about an outward circumcision. It is about the inward circumcision of the heart. It is about your heart. And Paul is pointing us back to what Jesus was saying in the Gospels. It is not what is out there that comes in here that infects you, that hurts you, that is going to kill you. It is what comes out of your heart that will defile, destroy, and kill. It's where our hearts. Yes, we see sin running rampant in this world. Yes, I believe it is the same today as it was for this church in Rome. Sin doesn't know time or care who it is. It's going to act and do the same things. going to give people the same excuses and justifications to do whatever they want to do. But even more, the good news of God's gospel, His saving grace, and His salvation through His Son, Jesus Christ, even more then and even more now. If we know the victory, if we know our Savior, why are we waiting? Why, why do we cower away from what is there? If you know somebody is hurting or struggling, why aren't you interjecting and speaking up and saying, hey, I want to be here in your life? Instead of operating on our culture somehow, I don't know if they're going to get offended or dislike me. Well, I'll tell you what, brothers and sisters, I'd rather have somebody not like me right now and in an eternity later than like me right now and not be in eternity. God is doing something in and through you. You're not here by accident. You're not in this community, in this church, and in the family, in the circumstances, whether hard or good, bad or ugly. God is wanting to do something, and I pray that God is waking us up to the reality that we can no longer do the Adam and Eve point fingers at each other because the reality is we're all sinners, and that's where we're going next week. There's only one that can save us, and that's Jesus Christ. I don't care how good you follow the law. If my wife were here, she would be able to sit there and tell me all the ones that I miss. And you know what? It's vice versa. But in the midst of our relationship, our marriage, our covenant, we're not to be pointing out those faults, but helping them to improve. So you and I, we have a choice. We have a choice in the sin and the ugliness that we see outside, and we have a choice in the sin and ugliness we see inside the church. What are we going to do? Are we going to sit back and say somebody else will take care of it? Are we going to sit back and tell that couple, oh, I would hate to raise a family in this time and age? Or are we going to get in there faithfully and obediently, knowing we're going to get beat up along the way? 
but also knowing that we are here as disciples of Christ to share this good news, to strengthen and encourage one another, to remain faithful. And we lifted up Ruth Crystal this morning. One of my last conversations with Ruth, 96 years old, her faithfulness through Sunday school. She taught in every single building over there. She had been here just a few times. Her faithfulness and her steadfastness in the midst of this community, in the midst of sin in the world, continues on. She's a saint that has gone before. And I will never, ever, ever forget the way that she sat there and looked me in the eyes and said, I cannot wait to see my husband again. I cannot wait to see Jesus face to face. I cannot wait for this next step in my faith. So I ask you, what are you waiting on? Don't. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we trust in your word. We know that you have given it to us without mistake. We know that you have spoken in and through, that you have breathed your Holy Spirit, and Lord, that you are doing something right now. And I pray, Lord, that we collectively and individually within our hearts would remain faithful, that we would be open, and that we, Lord, would trust in you. God, give us that conversation. Give us that situation and circumstance this week that might be uncomfortable, might, might be hard. Help us, Lord, to love thy neighbor. Help us to love you with all of our heart, mind, and soul. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to invite you to stand for a benediction. May the Lord make his face shine upon you. That in His grace and His love and in His truth that you would go from this place today, that you would go into this world to be a beacon of hope, of light, a message of the good news of Jesus' salvation for you and for many. Go in His name. Amen.